0: Welcome to Bubble Trouble, conversations between the independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist and author Will Page, that's him. And this is what we do, lay out inconvenient truths about how business and the financial markets really work. This week, we're live at the incredible state-of-the-art Platoon Studios in North London in conversation with a very special guest, someone who the independent called the man who may be the most influential in British television, Sir Peter Basiljet. He brought Big Brother to our screens during his tenure at Endemol, steered the Arts Council through a period of terrible austerity, and was recently chairman of the board of ITV. And no one is better placed to make sense of the creative industries and the bubbles they perennially produce than Sir Peter. More in a moment.
2: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
3: So Peter, before I ask you to introduce yourself, I would just like to introduce how I discovered you. 2007, I was at some panel by the work forum, I think, and there's a bunch of people talking about commercials and the influence of advertising. And you were on stage and you explained to us why a gorilla miming a Phil Collins song coming in the air tonight could sell Cadbury's milk chocolate. And for me, it was like a penny-dropping moment. Up until that day, I just didn't understand advertising. I probably didn't understand the creative industries. But the way you illuminated me into why gorillas playing drums to Phil Collins can sell chocolates, I'll never forget that day. So given that was my first year in London, I want to thank you for the 15 years of inspiration since. But please, just take a minute to introduce to our audience, which is very global in nature, you know, who you are, what your current work is, and where people can follow your work as well. Thank
4: you, Will, and thanks for the introduction. I want to let you into a little secret. After all these years, it was actually a person in a gorilla costume. It wasn't a real gorilla playing the drums. Oh,
3: Fake news, oh, spreading sorry, misinformation, look years. drumming misinformation. He even. Looks like a
4: four-year-old who's had his sweets <laughs> taken away.
3: Uh, but Father Christmas is still true, right? Oh no, of yeah. course no.
4: Father Christmas. Well, we won't go into that. that. There's a dark secret there too. Okay. So you asked me, yes. Well, you gave me a very kind introduction. And you quoted the independent newspaper. By contrast, the Daily Mail once called me one of 10 worst Britons. High praise. Yes. I, no, I've never been more There's gratified.
3: Inverse relationship to their criticism. Yeah.
4: At the moment, you talked about what I have done at the moment. I co-chair something called the Creative Industries Council, which is a sort of joint body of the whole creative industry sector and the government trying to create good policies for growing the sector. Mm. That covers all the sectors mm-hmm. of the creative industries we might talk about that i also sit on the board of the department of education i chair the royal college of art which is a very wow, exciting fantastic. place absolutely Amazing. pulsing with tech which we might talk about i don't know and i also sit on the board of a couple of commercial companies i chair an e-commerce retailer called lovecrafts and i sit on the board of a travel insurance company called saga And I can't think of anything else right now. Well, maybe just to, you know, chair a book prize. It's called the Bailey Gifford Prize. And we've been going for 25 years. And so we're going to do this in a month's time. We've just announced the shortlist. Go and look up Bailey Gifford. Look up our site on Twitter. We've just got the shortlist of the six best non-fiction books of the last 25 years. Wow. And there'll be one
0: winner. Of the last 25 years? Yes, some
4: brilliant books. It's a really interesting list. And it includes... One, Two, Three, Four by Craig Brown, a really revolutionary biography of the Beatles. An Empire of Pain by Patrick Radno O'Keefe, an amazing, astonishing book about the opioid crisis in America. It is yeah.
0: about the Sacklers and, and, the it, and opioid w- crisis. And it won
4: two years ago, yep. and it's an astonishingly brilliant book.
0: So we had Dan McCrum from the FT on Bubble Trouble talking about his experience as a journalist covering Wirecard. And I read his book as well, which was brilliant.
4: His experiences with Wirecar, with him being traced and around the world and followed and bugged and everything, was amazing. Yes. But the amazing thing about that book that Patrick Rankeith wrote about the Sackler family is that they poisoned America not once but twice. The first third of the book isn't even about the opioid crisis, mm. it's about the father and the grandfather. Indeed. They're a family of male psycho- sociopaths, sociopath, I should say, who did. When they, what they did for opioids, they did it for Librium and Valium. Yes. And they hooked, oh. with pernicious advertising, they hooked the Housewives of America, as they were then known, they wouldn't be flattered to be called that today, on Librium and Valium and called it the Housewives' Friend and mm. said it wasn't addictive. Mm. So and, and they did that, and then they went on, the next generation went on to do the op- opioid crisis. So it's an astonishing family and a, an amazing story.
0: And before I let Will loose to talk about television production creative industries, distribution. How do you feel about the arts sector being hooked on the Sackler's money? Well, so it's de-hooking itself. Of it the is. Some money. are and some are not. Nearly all have
4: now. Okay. It's a significant point that in the now, I think, nine to 10 billion settlement in America... Part of it is that any organization, it's written into the agreement, any organization that had Sackler money can now take the name down. And that's written into the agreement. And yes, you know, we've had to look at ourselves in the mirror. For instance, the Royal College of Art, where I'm the chair of council, has a Sackler building. Mm. And we have agreed with them that we're taking the name down. But I made a point of saying it must stay on the wall. Who the donors to the building are, including the name of the it's not the naming rights, because you should always be clear where your money's come from. Mm. And you can't rewrite history. Mm. So you've got to be clear on
3: it. But the naming rights is something quite different. And that's ended. Well, just quickly to wrap up on the Sacklers, the six-part drama with Michael Keaton documenting the opioid crisis. I think when you watch episode four of that, you go into depression. It's yep. so heartbreaking what happened in that story. Uh,
0: Dope Sick. Dope Sick, yeah.
4: Yeah. And it's a very fine series. And Michael Keaton is absolutely brilliant in it.
3: Yeah, I don't think you came off the set after making that. I think you'd take three months to recover from filming that show. It's just, he threw his life at the role. Well, from Sacklers to this podcast, and the podcast is called Bubble Trouble. We're interested in irrational behaviour, how people get overexcited at times how we go from swings, the boy who cried wolf, we always seem to blow up bubbles that blow up in our faces. And I want to wrap the first question around this term that we invented on this podcast called hyper-competition. That is, when is the a point where you have so much choice that the quality goes down? Is there too much choice out there? And we'll come to that in a second. But when we have hits in a world of infinite choice, How do those hits continue to resonate with the audience? Let's unpack this into two stages. Firstly, I want to ask you about hits, and then I want to ask you about choice. How do hits happen, and do we have too much choice? Now, you've had hits in the past. You've had Big Brother. You've had Changing Rooms, Ready Steady Cook. I'd be interested to hear you just begin by reflecting those hits of the past, how they happened, were they long planned out processes, or were they on spur-of-the-moments of inspiration? But in particular, would those hits happen today? Like, how would Big Brother work in a TikTok generation? Can you sort of go back in time, but bring it back to the present for us?
4: Yes, you've got a couple of hours, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> We've got sleeping bags in the studio oh, here. That's excellent. And hot chocolate, I do demand. That's in the contract. <laughs> hot chocolate. Look, in my case, I have had been lucky enough to have several television hits and... A big brother actually imported, so we'll put that Mm on one side for a Mm moment. Somebody else actually invented that, but I hope I helped make it popular. Several ingredients. In the case of TV, in those days, and there still are, people called commissioners, and they are the guys who have the money because they're working for BBC, ITV, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Disney+. And how are they going to deploy their money? And if they're at their best, those commissioners are what I call cool hunters. And they have the ability to stick their nose to the wind and smell not the coffee, the zeitgeist. And think this is what's bubbling under at the moment. Mm-hmm. This is what people are interested in. This is going to be the next thing. This is, not in terms of something specific, just themes. So a couple of television hits. You know, there was a very clever guy called Michael Jackson who used to run BBC Two years ago. And he said to me things like, I think we ought to have a food entertainment show in the afternoon. Can you think of something? And that's when I would go away and come up with something that may seem obvious in retrospect, but this particular show, Ready Steady Cook, had two chefs on it cooking in 20 minutes, ingredients, uh, you know, in a bag they hadn't seen in advance. And it just sort of took off like a train. And it sold all around the world. The first place I saw it it was in the States. It got written into a script of Friends. It became rather cool in New York on the Food Network. And in the end, you know, the whole, that single idea that occurred to me one afternoon when I was thinking about the challenge I'd had from The Cool Hunter probably turned over half a billion pounds in its life. Mm. If you take all the TV versions around the world, the books, the part works, the live shows and everything else. And so that's an interesting process of how you provoke creative people with great challenges and briefs. A second example would be Changing Rooms, which you kindly mentioned, which is not on air anymore, probably running somewhere in the world. These shows tend to go on and on. Another big hit in America. Yes. So the same guy, actually, Michael Jackson, said to me, look, you've done this thing for food in the afternoons. I need something for DIY and interiors. And I want it again to be a bit entertaining. So we thought of an idea that was, frankly, shit, quite shitty, and we got on the train at our offices, which was Tottenham Court Road Tube on the Central Line in London. We had to go from Central London out to West London, where the BBC was eight stops, and I turned, just as the doors closed, sliding doors closed, <laughs> I said to the producer who was with me, I said, this idea sucks, doesn't it? And she said... Yes, I said you might have told me that earlier. Anyway, I said, we've got eight stops to think up a different 60 idea. Sixteen minutes,
3: okay, so And
4: at Holland Park Tube Station, which was with two stops to go, I turned to her and I said, what would it be like if neighbours sort of swapped houses and did up a room in each other's houses i had no idea what I, I don't know why i said it i don't know why it came into my head anyway we went in and we pitched it not knowing quite what it was and he immediately said i'll have a series of that and we staggered out to the lift saying what the fuck have we just sold <laughs> and it became an absolute raging hit and it was still started on bbc2 with an audience of, sort of two or three million it ended up on bbc1 with 12 million people watching it which is a bigger million. audience actually simultaneous audience than anything gets nowadays with mm. fragmented media so In each of those cases, and in other cases I could mention, you've got a really good challenge from the person who's got the purse strings and you've got them stirring it up with people they think can come up with ideas. Mm. And then there's people responding to the ideas and being very critical, self-critical. And you come up with a shit idea. So perhaps the last point in the ingredient is deadlines. Very useful things. I think focuses the mind like concentrates the mind wonderfully
0: I have two simple questions to elaborate on that one is how far in advance does the cool hunter need to think because we've in this podcast we've looked at NFTs one of our most popular podcast is was Will coming back from South by Southwest a year ago and saying I don't get this whole NFT thing and I explained to him how a wash trade works and we kind of realized pretty quickly between us that this was all nonsense but Someone was thinking about that in advance, and now a year later, we realize it's bunkum. How far in advance does that cool hunter need to have the feel that something is going to be important? Because did someone three or four years ago figure out that we wanted some gory Korean drama and commissioned squid game? Or did it just fall into the lap of Netflix and they said, this looks pretty good? How, what's the lead time for these ideas?
4: All I can say in answer to that is I think people who are really gifted at this sort of thing, they may not have the ideas, but they get the themes, is they just soak up contemporary culture from, in those days, magazines, today, everything online. They're swiping up on TikTok faster than everybody else can swipe up on TikTok. They're soaking it all in and just somehow processing the cultural mm, essence of it and thinking, we've got to have something on that, we've got to have something on that. That's exciting, people. And very often, they're, if they're looking at it, they're catching it very early. So I can't say it's three years ahead or four years ahead or six months ahead. It's just there. It's floating. Mm. And they grab it.
0: And I guess one other question I wanted to ask before I toss it back over to Will is, I was just discussing this with a colleague today, when you look at some of these famous sitcoms, Friends, it ran for 15 years. You have these shows that had these incredible longevity. Evergreen. And now... It seems like nothing gets beyond season three and maybe season four, sometimes for the dramas they are written a little longer. But how do you create those tentpole moments, those cultural zeitgeist moments around shows when the half-life of the show is so much shorter than it was?
4: I completely agree it's shorter. I mean, I was lucky enough to have probably four or five hit shows, each of which lasted about 20 years, which is astonishing (laughs) in retrospect, astonishing, because they wouldn't today. Right. And by the way, as an aside, comedy, which Friends was, and there are many classic comedies here like Fawlty Towers yep, and Dad's Army, actually. Yep. These shows all got very low audiences in their first outing. Forty sure. Towers, BBC Two, audience of about 0.9 or 1 million. Wow. Repeated 10 years later, 12 million. Why? Because comedy, it needs to grow by word of mouth. You need to invest in the characters. And so I fear we, we will have fewer great comedies today. Mm. You might say you'll have a one-off comedy film, but in, in terms of great comedy franchises, I fear whether we're going to have them. Because, like, if you look at the nursery slopes, the nursery slopes should be the TV channels, but they're not really running sitcoms anymore. It's not really a f- thing anybody puts money into. Probably two or three get produced a year. Mm. And so that's, ver- that, that's very sad. I think I've gone off at a tangent.
0: <laughs> no, I think it, it's just we're thinking about the time scale of things. Because yes. bubbles are ones that crop up and disappear by nature very quickly.
4: So all I would say is I think this applies really um, uh, accurately to what I would call a specific property, so a specific format or a specific franchise of a drama or a comedy or whatever it is, or a documentary series. But actually I think it applies less to themes. So, for instance, the long-form documentary of True Crime probably engendered by the podcast industry and and by people like Netflix who had the space and the money to give a 13-part documentary that nobody else had ever imagined doing such before in in television history. As a genre, that's now caught on and everybody's into it, both in audio and video. And so I think we can probably make a switch, can't we, from saying it's difficult to get an individual franchise to last a long time. But if you can hit pay dirt... In a genre, that can last a long time.
3: Hmm. On the longevity of hits, it reminds me of a famous quote by the songwriter Crispin Hunt. When he looked at songs, he said, Some songs are evergreen, but maybe they've just been overwatered. Have you ever listened to FM radio in America? Journey and Foreigner, those two bands, have definitely been overwatered, because it's all you ever hear.
4: Well, you could equally say the same of Vivaldi's The Four Seasons on Classic FM here Mm. in the UK.
3: Well, you do know the story of Classic FM. The founder of Classic FM had a bet, which is that he could go into a petrol station, buy all the classical CDs that was available in said petrol station and set up a radio station. So he bought 21 CDs, and that was the birth of Classic FM. Well, I can tell you
4: something else about Classic FM, because the first programme controller moonlighted in his spare time as a television chef in one of my food shows. (laughs) And he put the whole sound together. For the year before Classic FM went on air, they had the wavelength, but they weren't ready to broadcast. So they put out bird song on it. So if you put in went onto the Classic F M frequency, for about six, nine months before it went on air, you just heard bird song. When it went on air they got thousands of letters of complaint. <laughs>
3: Where's that bird song gone? We don't want
4: any of this, Pimaldi. Bring back so,
3: the so, bird song. Sorry, Bad Scottish Joke coming in. Was it complaints or was it tweets?
4: <laughs> oh. Oh, okay. I think if
3: you think tweets were being sent out in 1994, you were ahead of your time. Yeah. <laughs> now, I want to move on to the subject of choice, but just going back to that, that, that description of the hits that you've had, one word you didn't mention when you looked at the ingredients of a hit was data or data science. And I'm just back from Stockholm. I landed at 2.30 in the morning after spending six hours on the runway. But I got home. But it was interesting to speak to all the record labels in Stockholm. Obviously, a first-mover country with a first-mover advantage in many forms of media, bundling all newspapers now into one single price. Now, it's a very interesting country. They're giving up on data science. They just believe it's an echo chamber. Like, data science is great understanding what happened. It doesn't tell you what's happening. You didn't use much data science in Ready, Steady, Cook, did you?
4: I used quite a lot of audience research, which is a form of data, and I'll explain how. Look, the idea that data can give you a hit is answered very simply in the phrase, snakes on a plane. I don't need to say any more. You know the story. (laughs) Mm.
3: No, please. I've always wanted to watch the movie Snakes on a Plane, and I just can't guess what the plot is about. (laughs) Precisely so. Precisely so.
4: So the kids were asked in a survey what would you most like to see a movie what's the movie, the title of a movie you'd most like to see and they voted for a movie called Snakes on a Plane and unfortunately they went and made it (laughs) (laughs) but in terms of data look, it can inform you but it can't replace the creative process right? And so when I had the pilot of Ready, Steady, Cook, I hadn't got the ending of the format right, and we put it into research, and focus groups watched it, and they said, well, that ending sucks, you know, and we had to replace it. Similarly, I had another very big hit called Ground Force, which was a sort of gardening makeover show. It was the first gardening makeover show. There were many lookalikes around the world thereafter. And I had actually invented a completely different show. There used to be ads on telly for mowers, and they had... To, two suburban gardeners who lived next door to each other who were competing with each other who had the greenest lawn with the straightest mow lines on it. And I had this obsession that suburban gardeners compete with each other over the fence, you know. So I had got this bloke called Alan Titchmarsh and I got him to sit on a Wimbledon umpire's chair over the fence and two families had to compete to make their gardens over and he would look at them both at the same time. (laughs) And we actually shot that as a pilot. Well, it went into research and they found it completely perplexing. Luckily, I had lunch with the person who'd done the research before we were going to a meeting with the controller of BBC Two who, because we'd had all these other hits, wanted to commission this show. But the research said it was crap. And so I had a couple of hours, deadlines again, to think up a different format. So we went into the meeting and the research was presented... And it said, well, this it doesn't really work and you don't have enough information in it. There should be somebody in there who understands how DIY and planking, all sorts of criticisms. And I thought of a completely different show. But anyway, I let the thing go. And the controller of the BBC2 commissioned this very poor show because he trusted me, thought I'd never had another, have, have another hit because I had one. And then I said, well, yeah, but it's not very good, this research, is it? Why don't we Why don't we do a completely different show? Why don't we do this show, you see? And I said that one member of a family... They were a horrible garden. It's a tip. And nobody in the family will do anything about it. So you get, get the person to go away for the weekend. Just get them out of the house. And we'll make the whole garden over behind their back. And then they'll come back. And they'll find the whole house completely looks different. This doesn't sound particularly original now, but it was original at the time. And... He was very uncertain, because this threw him, because we'd been going down this other avenue. So he went away for two weeks, but in the end he commissioned it, and that was another show. Gardening programmes typically got 2 million views on BBC Two. That, again, got 12 million views on BBC One.
3: Which is unheard of today. But
4: it had data in it, you see, because data had informed crap idea and sort of been the mother of a
3: better idea. But it took gut to realise how a crap idea could... Maybe. Flip the tortilla. Now, I really want to get into this topic of hyper-competition, which we credit Paul Sanders with. In essence, the point where quantity goes up and quality goes down. Now, you came to the fore in your television work in an era where most people had five channels on their TV and maybe some people had around 50 with a Sky package. If I just throw some numbers at you, the purpose of this is to say... How do hits happen? How do we get bubbles when we have an unlimited choice? Let's just look at some figures. I confirmed today that Hollywood last year produced 599 English-speaking original scripted dramas. You
4: use the word original advisedly.
3: (laughs) But that does work out as two per working day, Mm. I think. Five days in a week, if you do the maths. We are now looking on Spotify at 100,000 deduplicated songs every day, which is more music than was released in 1989. On podcast, the ramp rate on podcast, is currently two new shows, not episodes, every minute. And on the book front, and you're judging a book price shortly, I think it's 1.3 million frontless titles came out last year. This is unheard of in the floodgates of opening in the supply of content. Now, when you look back at your career and you look at today's level of choice, How do you navigate that? And what I want to push you towards is this very taboo question, which lots of people in music are asking. Is there too much choice? Some is better than none, but it doesn't necessarily follow that more is better than some.
4: Yes, well, to start at the end of your question. So what's the alternative? Let's have a government ministry (laughs) <laughs> for forbidding choice. Well, we're And saying that we're going to put a limit on the number of songs anybody can put,
3: <laughs> load ha- on to ha- Spotify this year. We're having if music matters because it gets there first. This is a debate we're having. Should you have sleep music on Spotify? There's a story on Twitter today about a sleep music white noise playlist which lasts 2 minutes and 12 seconds has had over a billion streams, a billion streams. So, but the point is you cannot I hope you nobody would ever consider
4: restricting Output or creativity, and but the great do we need filters. Well, hang on, we'll come to that. And the great democratization of the digital era that we are—let's remember—only about fifteen years into, mm-hmm. so we don't really understand it yet. That's the truth of it. We don't really know where it's going. We don't really understand it or what its possibility is. It has amazing de- democratization and ability for anybody to distribute in a wonderful way. But listen, there's a gold standard in here. It's called word of mouth. It worked in the old days and it works today. Mm -hmm. Now, you can have really sophisticated marketing techniques today and you can know how to market stuff brilliantly online and you can create communities around your content if you're very clever at using social media and so on. But you can't put lipstick on a pig. (laughs) And the point is that something really good or something that has something will spread by word of mouth. And that's why you still have Ed Sheeran and Adele in the era you're talking about.
3: Yeah. Well, I can build that point out a little further. I was hosting a panel of ILMC, which is the International Live Music Conference, the biggest gathering of sweaty, fading grey rock T-shirts and odour problems you've ever seen. All the promoters of the world come to it. But my panel was about the success of stadiums and festivals, which dominate live music now. We offer more choice on streaming. We want more hits when we go to shows. And I was very honoured to have Marty Diamond, who's the agent for Coldplay and here Sheeran on the panel. And He said something, which is, I've given up on these streaming stats. They mean nothing. You can tell me that you're doing 10 million, 20 million, 50 million streams a month, a week, a day, but you can't sell out a pub. So that doesn't matter. So what he's now looking at, you said word of mouth, is he's looking at comments on the YouTube as a ratio of how many views on the YouTube. So how many people watched a clip on YouTube and felt compelled to comment is the figure that he's looking for? That's a really interesting piece
4: of data, and I completely agree with him. I hope he's looking at the positive comments, not the negative (laughs) ones, because when I said word of mouth, it can work both ways.
3: I I worked with the artist Yeba, Abby backwards for many years, and she always used to say, I value the comments on YouTube more than the royalties from Spotify. I thought that was incredibly telling about where art has gone in recent years as well. Last question before the break, anyone who comes on our show has a book we should talk about the book. You have a fantastic book which influenced my book, The Empathy Instinct. I would love it if you could talk quickly about the book, but especially about that wonderful chapter or box that was in the book where you talked about how children at a very young age share empathy in terms of their emotions. So The Empathy Instinct was
4: written really because MRI scanners can now pretty well define how the brain functions as we learn about how the human brain works how empathy works why people have it why they don't have it why autistic people have less of it in some respects and why so- society functions or doesn't function what the glue is i wrote the book because i was interested in what it meant about childcare, what it meant about education what it meant about the digital era i call it the digital dystopia what it meant about the judicial system what it meant about why we put money into arts and culture, public money into arts and culture, because storytelling is the act of empathy and all sorts of different themes like that. But to come to the specific thing, perhaps I'll start by saying one in four of the people in a British prison are people who are children in care. One in four, 25%. Why is that? Because they didn't get the start in life. Why didn't get the start in life? Because they didn't have at least one parent looking them in the eye, connecting with them and helping their lovely neuroplastic brains develop in the right way, connecting with others. So what are those stages? The first stage is called emotional contagion, where a very, very young baby will cry because they hear another baby cry. The next stage is where they're aware of other people. It isn't just all about them, but at that stage, they might, if a child's crying, they might take that crying child to their mother, rather than that child's mother, because it's all wow. about it's still all about them. Then they can um, go to higher stages of empathy, which is understanding another point, a person's point of view. And the ultimate position on empathy is that you can put yourself in other people's shoes. Why do you feel nervous when you see somebody on a tightrope? You're not on the tightrope. Why would you feel nervous? Observed by Adam Smith originally. Wow. As well as by others, somebody called Theodore Lipps, a German philosopher who came up with the phrase empathy from Greek words. Why do you feel nervous? You have this ability to put yourself in other people's shoes. It's part of the human condition. And if you can put yourself in other people's shoes and feel sympathy for them, then that's something. And then uh, empathy is part of the problem, part of the solution. We are empathetic to people Specifically empathetic to people within our own tribe who look like us, who come from, who speak our same language, have the same color skin. So empathy, actually, in that sense, is at the basis of racism. It's tribalism is at the base of racism, and we are naturally racist. We learn through education and culture to be less racist, and that makes a juster society. You rely on arts and culture and education in order to do that. Part of the problem, but also part of the solution, because the empathy which you can feel for somebody outside your tribe Here, the classic story is the story of the Good Samaritan in the New Testament. That's why the the Old Testament is all about tribal warfare. The New Testament has this extraordinary revolutionary story in it where somebody is mugged by the side of a road and people in his own tribe walk straight past him. but Somebody from a different tribe stops to help that person. Utterly revolutionary philosophy, but the essence of empathy is there. That is the most positive empathy. That's what the book's about.
0: Fantastic. Mm. We're having a fascinating discussion about empathy, content, quality, choice... And how little relevance all this data science nonsense really has for what moves us as people. With one of the leading lights of the UK creative sector, Sir Peter Bazalgette. So we'll be back in a moment with part two of Bubble Trouble.
2: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
0: Welcome back to Bubble Trouble. Something Sir Peter has just said has sparked off one of my very favorite books, Alison Gopnik's The Philosophical Baby, which is fundamentally about how infants are different people than we are because they have unfettered access to the right side of their brain. They have a free ability to enter the creative side of their lives, not the mechanical, boring, repetitive side of our brain, which handles all of our daily functions, and that their brains are effectively open fields as opposed to places where there have been motorways and highways and byways carved and a lot of routines have ruined our ability to be open to the world. And I'm not sure where I'm going with this other than to say I completely it completely resonates with me. As the parent of twins, when one would cry, the other would absolutely cry. I liken the experience of having twins to getting punched in the face and kicked in the balls at the same time because you had to figure <laughs> out which you were going to protect. But fundamentally, that experience of early childhood and the moth-like attraction to flame that we have to narrative I think runs so deep in our culture and must be at the essence of what you're trying to develop as a UK creative industry which has to reflect Britain, but it must also reflect how much diversity now represents Britain. So you just mentioned...
4: Kids and narrative. You know, one in four of the people in prison were kids in care. I mentioned that earlier. The bedtime story. Oh. Completely basic thing in our civilization if you don't get that if you don't get that quite the only problem with me as a bedtime story is i used to go to sleep rather than <laughs> my son he used to have to prod me because i would oh, be no. working all day and i used to go fast asleep. but i woke up at three o'clock this morning for some reason i don't know so i put on bbc world service and they had an hour-long interview with michael rosen brilliant really kids author oh. the author of the bear hunt you know we're going yeah, to yes. catch a big one we're and he was just talking yeah. he was just talking about his philosophy and how he can think his way into children's heads to make great stories for them a lot of which is repetition and there I just want to mention this brilliant kids series which is still popular around the world called Teletubbies mm-hmm. and that has a fundamentally brilliant thing in it because Anne Wood who ran the business understands kids when they show a little for the Teletubbies go all their funny noises and then they watch a little film they'll watch a two minute film on say making bread okay it's a two minute film making bread so you've seen the film an adult will say right we've seen that now what next? No, they come back to the Teletubbies and they say, again, again. (laughs) And so they bloody well run the film again, (laughs) which nobody would ever dare do in television before. Run the same thing twice. uh, But that's what kids want. They love it. The repetition is brilliant for them. That's how they make sense of the world.
0: Well, so the narrative. So one of my signal moments understanding the power of narrative was I lived a year in Asia with my kids about 10, 15 years ago. And I got to know one of the guys who was a global marketing head for Lego and Lego used to have these little product videos about all of their new variants of Ninjago or whatever superhero Lego version they were doing. And they used to produce them in a hundred languages. And then they realized we just take the language away and just show the video. Wow. And the kids understood the video without any language They understood the narrative. They understood the story that was embedded in these brilliant toys. And they didn't need someone narrating it for them. They could make their own narration. And by adding the narration, they became much more engaged with the story than they ever would if someone had given them the storyline of Lego's latest Harry Potter toy.
4: So the power of stories and the way we relate to them and how it's how it makes sense we are, Jonathan Gottlieb called us a storytelling animal we need to tell stories and we need to be told stories and that's how we make sense of the world and the example you've just given really makes me think, one, radio is wonderful love radio. we're indulged in it now a version of it why because radio has the best pictures they always used to say that which is to your point well <laughs> and, and then, will
0: has a face for radio
4: and then the second point is that we let's go back to the 1920s and and the 1910s and the 1920s the early stage of cinema no dialogue it all had to be essentially mimed and you had to put onto it your interpretation of it some of it was very iterative not all of it was though a lot of it you sat and watched a silent film you're influenced by the music which is the sort of monosodium glutamate element Mm -hmm. of it and then you had to imagine what the emotions were because there weren't literal words to tell you what they were all of these things think about the plasticity of the brain and how the brain locks onto that and completes the so strong so
3: strong is our need for stories we'll make it work whatever bits of it you give us Now, James Cater, who runs Wondery, the big podcast platform owned by Amazon, always says to the show, you guys should go down the rabbit hole in part two. You know, what is it you really want to dig deep in? And before we get to Smoke Signals, which is how we close the show out every week, I wanted to go down the rabbit hole with you on the arts. We don't have enough time this year to talk about your achievements for the arts in Britain, what you've done for funding, what you've done for the promotion, what you've done for advocacy. And... I do a lot myself, you know, pro bono, just always seeking out ways to, for example, exploring the link between music education and mathematical attainment. I honestly believe kids who get music education at a younger stage in their life will pursue maths for more years than what otherwise required. They won't quit maths at 16. But what is Bach except for celestial mathematics? <laughs> Exactly. Let's take a conversation we had many years ago when George Osborne, our Chancellor, was entering a period of austerity and we we're figuring out what could be done with arts funding. Your work for Arts Council England, your work today, and again, we're looking at some pretty dark clouds of economic austerity ahead, potentially. What would be your message to avoid the bubble of arts funding from bursting over the next two or three years as we get through this tricky period of high inflation, rising interest rates and uh, reduce public spending. Let's first observe that the whole artistic creative output, including the whole music
4: business, the whole video games business, the whole fashion business, the whole screen business, film and TV and audio, is pretty healthy and it's growing and it's full of great ideas. So it isn't all about the government and what the government can put money into. We don't live in a totalitarian state. But it is good for a government to put public money into the arts i believe because i believe it has both a democratic public benefit particularly with the the responsibilities of public service broadcasters to present and produce independent impartial trusted news in an era of gossip rumor and paranoia the world of the internet the tower of babel we all now (laughs) is so ghastly in, in that respect in the cultural sense that we need to have a national conversation. And you talked earlier about media getting more and more fragmented. So what are the things that unify us? What are our values that unify us? How do we explore those values? How do we develop those values? We do it via content and thirdly economic because of the power of the creative industries about 6% of the overall economy growing two or three times faster and so on employing in this country 2.3 million people so that's why you might put public money into the arts because it has that public benefit that that is delivered and on top of that um you would want the different arts to flourish you'd want opera and orchestral music and theatre. And now I'm going to repeat my old Ripple's law, which I've talked to you before. He was a newspaper editor in Germany in the early 20th century, and he came up with his law, which was that uh, innovations in media tend to add to what went before rather than replacing what went before. In other words, innovations in media are more like the car and the train than the car and the horse. And it's a sort of fundamental thing to think about, because whenever a new thing happens, like YouTube, the soothsayers immediately say television is dead. But what happens in the media nearly all the time is that one thing adds to the thing before. It may influence it. Mm-hmm. You know, streaming has not killed broadcast telly. Newspapers were not killed by radio. And television didn't kill radio. And so that's a sort of fundamental point. So in the arts, you'd want all those different genres to flourish and one doesn't kill the other. Cinema has not killed theatre. And you'd want to put public money into the next generation of talent. Danny Boyle, trained as a trainee theatre producer at the Royal Court Theatre with public money invested in him becoming a theatre producer. He went into television and film production. He created an Oscar-winning movie, Slumdog Millionaire. Mm. That is the way in which you put public money, just as you do into higher education, you put public money. You put public money into the next generation of talent and it comes through and it drives the commercial sector as well. So that's one of them... Apart from the public good that I talked about being delivered earlier, just that whole thing about the next generation of talent. And by the way, when we hear some... Critics of higher education say you should only judge the value of a degree by what the person earns in the five years after they that come out. Insane. That is about people who know, to quote Oscar Wilde, the price of everything right. and the value of nothing. Because <laughs> if somebody chooses to leave university and become a theatre director, trainee and earn into 20000 a year rather than going to work in a hedge fund, are, we to, is that some, is, are they morally defective? Has the system broken down? No. I think not.
0: But how do you make the case for the emotional value of the arts? Because it's very hard to put on a spreadsheet. But if we waved a magic wand and removed the arts from our lives, we'd all be terribly impoverished and miserable. So we all have arts we rely on all the time. We don't necessarily recognize that. How do you make the case for its value to the kind of things that will and his economist, Ilk, are now always trying to measure, which is happiness. How do you, You're saying how you measure it? How do you measure it? How do you make the mm. case for politicians mm. that are looking to fill mm. in numbers on a budget yeah. while they're also saying we shouldn't look at GDP, we should look at happiness and well-being of but society? The
3: example I always give in my book, and I quote it recently to a Tory cabinet minister, is to consider Wikipedia. The sum of all the world's knowledge it does no environmental damage, and it adds zero to gross domestic product, to which you can immediately think of many things which are not the sum of all the world's knowledge, do terrible environmental damage, and add lots to gross domestic product, and that's the problem you're trying to solve. I think when we look at the role for the state in the arts, we miss that trick is what matters most is measured least. So I think if you tried to measure happiness
4: as you measure GDP... You deserve to have your head examined.
0: Ask That's, That's over there for the economists. Don't look at me. Look at all those economists <laughs> trying to measure that these days. Um,
4: yes, there's. A well, didn't David
0: Cameron have a good line about we want to measure happiness? And
4: there's lies, damn lies, and happiness statistics. <laughs> Don't ask a do a
3: pessimistic Scottish economist about happiness. That's just
4: out of my forty. <laughs> but to your point, though, and it's a really good one.
3: You know, I was very moved, and it was. It's
4: just. In my memory, a particular play produced the Kiln Theatre when I was a chair of Arts Council, which is a theatre that has public money in it. And it's called Red Velvet. And it's about an American black actor in the 1820s, Ira Aldridge, whose parents had been slaves, who came across to London. He was knocking around Europe as a jobbing actor. And the great Shakespearean actor of the time was Edmund Keane. And Edmund Keane was playing Othello at the Covent Garden Theatre. And he fell ill. And they had to get somebody to replace him at short notice. And they cast a black man to play the black part of Othello. The fellow actors complained. The audience complained. And the critics complained. And he was sacked from the part within five days. A black man playing the part of a black man. And in the play Red Velvet, it ends with him whited up, because the only parts he can get is playing a white person in, in, in <laughs> London's theatre of the 1820s. Now, the point is, you sit in that theatre as a white, in my case, middle-class bloke, and you're sitting next to people of all ethnicities, and you just dimly begin to understand what it is like to be black in a predominantly white society. Dimly, I say, because you can't profoundly understand that I think but you can try to and you know I tell that story because that's the power of storytelling satisfying on an emotional level and we need that satisfaction culturally important how we develop our thinking and our ideas and how
3: our society functions and, and prospers need I say more well, wow. Richard, before we get to smoke signals, when you heard Peter talk about Ripple's law, how new innovations build on top of what was before, not displace, surely that has to strike a chord with you as an analyst of 30 years looking at bubbles when people say this whole great new thing is going to replace everything before it. Well, it doesn't. Blue Apron didn't re- replace the food and beverage industry of America.
0: But I think that's that certainly, and I throw this back to Sir Peter, are most cultural products you see incremental, in that they're building on something that came before. We had one Shakespeare. And since then, we've been reinterpreting Shakespeare in an incremental way. There are occasionally completely new media invented, completely revolutionary artists. But for the most part, we're just asking people to reflect upon all that's come before and create incremental thoughts around it? Is, or is that, am I being too dismissive?
4: Your question has just reminded me of another justification of public money going into the arts, which is <laughs> what I used to say. Richard crossed the ball, Peter, okay. stick it in the back of the net, yeah. Which is what I used to say, because public money should go into much more risky arts, because today's outrage is tomorrow's mainstream. Mozart, Beethoven, parts of the classic repertoire now, they were revolutionary mm-hmm. in their day. Revolutionary. Yeah.
0: And we've had 30 years. Of, there's a brilliant Radio 6 documentary series about drum and bass, which is now entering its third decade of completely changing a whole range of music scenes and becoming a global phenomenon that was really kind of born in the UK. And born by playing a record at the wrong speed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) As was a lot of punk music. When my high school art teacher used to say punk, it's just rock and roll songs played at twice the speed.
3: Now, Richard, time to close it out. We're here at the world state-of-the-art Platoon Studios in North London. Sign-proof, felt-clad. Clearly, there's no smoking sign, but we have to get smoking to wrap this up.
0: So, Baz, if I might ask, we typically ask our guests for a couple of smoke signals and the kind of things that make you go... "Mm." That's something to worry about another bubble bursting or another bubble forming. What are the kind of things you hear as points thrown out about the arts or cultural production that you feel are indicative of worrisome bubbles or worrisome trends that make you go, "Mm, not quite sure that's true? Maybe they're things that politicians say about cultural production or I don't want to lead the witness here. But what are the kind of things that you hear in your... All the variety of people that you meet that would make you, give you pause for thought.
4: Something I'm quite exercised about at the moment is BBC bashing. Oh, Because we have an extraordinary asset. I'm not saying it's always brilliantly run or it's always right. But we have an extraordinary asset that there should be such a thing as a government that puts public money into an organisation whose remit is to hold it to account publicly via media, seems to me to be the most sophisticated definition of a liberal democracy. And the drip of undermining it and saying it's rubbish and saying it's awful, as I hear from so many people in both houses of parliament in this country, really upsets me. And that, to quote Joni Mitchell, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Oh.
0: <laughs> the Green War, and indeed having travelled in 80 countries around the world, what an incredible brand power and soft power asset it is to think that it would be diminished in any way is such it's tragic the
4: international brand of UK PLC is lower than it's been for 30 or 40 years because of the madness of our politics in the last 12 months because of our struggles post Brexit whether you're pro or anti Brexit it's still we've had our struggles as a result and our soft power, our cultural output, of which the most extraordinary is the BBC. Mm. In fact, if I was to say British cultural output in one phrase, it would be the BBC and Shakespeare. Mm. It would be those two things. Is the greatest thing we have to try and restore our reputation around the world. And if we don't restore our reputation around, around the world, we won't have the economic trade and healthy trade that we want flows from, the, from a cultural power.
0: And I always say that the notion that you have this on our doorstep, a market of 350 million people where kids wake up in Malmo or Milan or Marseille. And thanks to 50 years of the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Radiohead and so forth, they want to wake up and come to London. All those teenage kids, they dream of coming to the freest capital of music and culture in the world. And that's London, the biggest city in Europe. And the idea that we've somehow blocked them from coming or made it more difficult for them to come won't stop them from coming but it's equally tragic in my view
3: you talked about 12 months of slightly surreal politics go back 12 years with david cameron he was a prime minister who got it i used to always write a speech for him which was that britain was one in three music exporters in the world the other two being america and sweden one in three of gaming exporters in the world the other two being america and canada and one in three of TV exporters in the world, the one being America and, can you guess, a third? Holland, I think. mundo. <laughs> thanks to a company called Endemol, which I think takes this podcast full circle. So, Baz, I heard you first in 2007 explain to me why a gorilla, which may have been a real human after all, but a gorilla playing drums to Phil Collins could sell Cadbury's milk chocolate, And it's been 15 years of inspiration ever since. And to share stages with you has been an honour. But to create a podcast, an evergreen podcast that can be listened to again and again, just means the world. I want to thank you so much for coming to the Apple Platoon Studios here in North London to record this podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Blessings on both your heads. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: A very special thanks to Oliver Blois and Stella Massonet at Platoon Studios in London, If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Will Page and I will see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel,
1: founder of Pretty Litter.